us to life. So that's what I hope today as we introduce James. That's what I hope to, over this series is going to happen. He's going to dial into your heart. He's going to awaken this fresh repentance, this fresh faith, this fresh gospel application. And that we're going to not be content to be talkers anymore. We're only going to be content when we're doers. Let's pray together and then we'll introduce the book. Uh, so Father... We only stand here because of the love of Christ. We only stand here because of the power of Christ. We would only dare gaze on the beauty of your holiness because of Christ. We would only dare approach the throne that, is, that you are seated on because it's the throne of grace because of Christ. We would only dare open our mouths to petition you because of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that all the privileges that are ours because of Christ, we would rejoice in them. We would stand in them. We would abide in them. And we can only do that because of Christ. So would you help us, Jesus? We today give you some of the major themes that... Amen. So want to overview the book of James today, give you some of the major themes that, that come with it. We'll be reading it as we do uh, when we start new series. Um, and so hope that you'll be able to, to listen to that and God will be able to speak in your eye for that. But a couple of things to kind of introduce it. Uh, so the author of James is James. But which James? Right? There's four James in the New Testament. James, uh, one of the sons of Zebedee, a pretty prominent apostle, but he died very early way before this book, so not him. There's two other Jameses that are fairly obscure in the New Testament and w you wouldn't think would have the kind of chops and reputation to write this or be identified as apostles. Uh, and so that leaves one. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who rose to prominence within the Jerusalem church, in fact, is the leading voice in Acts 15 when there's a Jerusalem council on what do we do with the Gentiles and what do we do with the law it is James who has the final voice and it's James who sends the letter out uh, to the churches from there uh, so we you know the 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 vast majority of people view James the half-brother of Jesus as the author uh, date and occasion so James got the privilege of being martyred for his half-brother and his savior Jesus uh, in AD 62 um, he Again, this, this council, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, happened around 49 AD. Probably a big enough deal that it would have made its way into this kind of book. And so the, the thought is that the date of this book is somewhere in the mid-40s uh, AD. And one of the reasons that matters is a lot of people think James and Paul fought a lot. Well, he predates most, if not all, of the writings of Paul. There was no widespread writing ministry of Paul before the mid-40s A.D., and so they're in isolation speaking to their churches the revealed truth that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. They're not interacting with each other or fighting with each other in any way whatsoever. Um, why did he write it? Well, James is shepherding a people that persecution has dispersed all over the known world, all over the Roman Empire at the time, right? So this massive wave of persecution uh, went through Jerusalem. It really went through the, the Roman Empire, but went through Jerusalem, and it scattered people out from there, and he's shepherding a people who are who persecution has driven them somewhere else. And there's all kinds of issues that come up when you have been persecuted, and there's all kinds of issues that come up when you've been scattered away from your homeland. So some of those are from outside of you. What do we do? Count it all joys when you fall into various trials, right? 
Um, and he's going to tell us why to count it all joy. There's also a lot of problems that happen within people who have been displaced, who are under a lot of pressure and strain. And so why are there quarrels and fights among you? Right? So there's some, there's some within the, the body of Christ fighting going on and divisions going on. But you know, probably because you faced a trial or two in your life, maybe they were small, maybe they were big. They're wonderful opportunities for your sin nature to show up, aren't they? Like, I get tired a little bit, and all of a sudden it's this massive trial, and my sin nature rears its ugly head. And so can you can imagine if there's more strain and more stress, or you've got this anger, you've got this guilt, you've got this, this temptation to sync up with the culture around you so you don't face any more pressures or trials, and so they've drifted from the faith in a lot of places, and James is largely calling them back to faithfulness, back to godliness in a world that wants to own their heart. And so that's what a lot of what James is writing and a lot of what James is calling to. He's calling them to live out their faith. He's calling them to endure. He's calling them to purify themselves. He's calling them to reject the grasp of worldliness over their heart and embrace following God right where they are with all the pressures they're currently facing. And that's why he's writing. And so uh, you're going to hear the book read in just uh, in a little bit. But as you hear it, what you're going to hear is it sounds an awful like a lot like another book of the Bible. It sounds an awful lot like the book of Proverbs. Right? And so the main literary category of James is wisdom literature. Right? And so it's, uh, as you read Proverbs, you kinda, it jumps from place to place. Um, it, it, it hits all of these individual issues, but it kind of bounces around on what those issues are, and you're going to hear some of that. Um, the other main, th- uh, main kind of style thing of James that you're going to notice, 108 verses, 50 commands. That's nearly one command for every two verses of the book of James. It's intensely practical. It's about the God that you talk about, and so it's going to be wisdom literature, that presses on you the need for obedience and application flowing out of the gospel. And so that's kind of the last thing I would point out as we, as we introduce the book is there's a temptation to think James is light on theology uh, because he doesn't have extended teaching sections. He doesn't have those Ephesians 1 grand theologies that are unpacked for us. He doesn't have these extensive, here's, what, here's who you are in the gospel, and then this second half of the book, here's what you do like Paul does. Instead, he packages his theology very differently. But it's there, right? You're going to meet God, the Father of lights, who delights to give every good and perfect gift. You're going to meet the God who is generous and lavish in giving wisdom to the people that need wisdom right there for the stuff they're facing. You're going to meet a God who chooses and has compassion on the poor. You're going to meet a God who is the coming judge. And since he's coming back, that there's a motivation to live a certain way because he's coming to get you and he's coming to make everything right again. So there's a lot of theology. It's just packaged differently than other books of the Bible. And so I'm going to invite Chandler to kind of work his way up. He'll be one of our first readers. Uh, but as they do, we're going to read through the book of James. And what I want to invite you to do is you take the posture that is best for you to listen. If you like to close your eyes and hear, do it. If you want to follow along on the screen or in your Bible, but whatever it takes to meditate and let these truths get into your heart, do it. Because you're going to be challenged to do the word. You're going to be challenged on how you use this thing called your mouth. You're going to be challenged on the partiality that we like to chop people up and view them in different ways because of their statuses. And you're going to be challenged for the gospel to govern all of that stuff. And so I invite you to listen. uh, And Chandler, we'll let you come right on back, right on up and start us out.
and you heard it, is the gospel compels us not just to hear, but to do the word. The gospel compels us not just to hear, but to do the word. And so where do I get gospel, right? It's important, but I don't want to just make stuff up because it helps me say what needs to be said. Because Jesus is only mentioned twice in the book of James. Very exalted language, but twice. So in the introduction, he's the master. In chapter 2, he is the Lord of glory. Gospel is not mentioned at all. And so how do we know that the practical commands of doing the word are practical commands from the gospel? So I would encourage you to look at chapter 1, verse 21. This is the verse before the main verse of the whole book of James. This is the verse before be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And look what it says. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your souls. So he is going to launch into do the word, but he's not going to launch into doing the word until he says first, the word is a seed, and that seed is planted in your heart, and if it's implanted in your heart and it takes roots, it saves you, and if it saves you, there's a kind of lifestyle that salvation looks like. There's a gospel lifestyle that's meant to be lived out. And so everything about the book, though it's going to go from here to 50 other commands, it's going to start with the simple command for you to receive and let the gospel take root in your heart and save you, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll save you. Uh, another place where it's tightly connected to obedience is chapter 2, verse 1. Show no partiality. Command. As you hold to your faith. I'm going to have the saving faith in Jesus. If I'm going to cling to someone who is a believer in Jesus, then what does that look like? No partiality. There's a deep connection between the obedience of no partiality and the faith uh, in Jesus Christ who saves the Lord of glory. And then, of course, it's an implication, right? The whole discussion of chapter 2, faith versus works, faith versus works, what is it a discussion of? It's a discussion of if you have genuine saving faith, can you have genuine saving faith and just talk about it? Or if you have genuine saving faith, do you actually have to have works that come out of that genuine saving faith? And that's the great debate, right? I, I have faith. Great, show it to me. I have faith. Good, I'm glad you say that. Show it to me. I have faith. Let me show it to you by my works is how that argument culminates. And so the book of James has a very direct implication between the way he wants you to live and the gospel. And so I want to draw a very close parallel between your lifestyle and that of the gospel. Have you ever come to a place where you have repented of your sins? You've put away the wickedness that's part of your life. You've put away the idolatry that's part of your life. You've put away, I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I set the rules. It's my way. And turned from that. And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you? Right? Because we are all born dead in our sins and trespasses, which we once walked. We are all born underneath um, the God of this present age. We are all born living out the lusts and the desires of our hearts. They may be good religious lusts, but they're deadly lusts. Have you ever turned from those and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? 
God who became flesh, who dwelt among us, who lived a life of mockery and scorn, perfectly yielded to the Father's will, that you were meant to live, but he lived in your place, who died on a cross that you should have died on instead. You deserve the death penalty, not him. And he died on a cross for your sins, and he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. Have you ever turned from your sin and believed in that Jesus? Receive with meekness. Receive with no pride whatsoever. Receive abandoning any riches, any goodness, any background that you have to claim to and say, no, Jesus only, the death and the life and the resurrection of Jesus only. Receive the implanted word and then do the word that was implanted in you. The first major theme that we're going to look at the gospel that to faithfully endure trials and temptations. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's a picture that's helpful, and I want you to get it. I'm holding a red solo cup, and I know y'all are sinful thinking about what's in it. It's ink. And I'm holding this cup of ink over our nice, I mean, this was expensive carpet. This nice carpet, it's expensive because there's a lot of it, by the way. I'm holding this cup with ink and this nice carpet, and then you think it's hilarious. You come by and you squeeze my hand. Everything in the cup comes out. What's coming out? Ink. It's going to get all over me and my nice clothes. They're old, but they're nice. It's going to get all over you and your nice clothes. It's going to get all over this expensive carpet. Or I'm holding a red solo cup filled with water. And you think it's hilarious. You come squeeze my hand. It's all coming out again. What's coming out? Water. It's going to get on me, it's going to get on you, it's going to get on the rug, but it's not a big deal, right? Because it's water. The pressures out there, the trials out there, the temptations out there, the testing out there has a way of squeezing our hearts. But you know what comes out in the midst of testing? You know what comes out in the midst of trials and pressures and stress? What's already in the heart. What's already in the cup. And so one of the things, not all of the things, we'll get into that in future weeks, one of the things that God is up to in the middle of our trials is squeezing some of the junk that's in our heart out so that his sanctification, his redemption, and his life can be there in its place. So the more your heart squeezes on this earth, the more he comes out and not anger. He comes out and not fear. He comes out and not worry. He comes out and not whatever other response we have. But Jesus and the life of Jesus in us comes out when we start getting our lives squeezed. And so he empowers us to endure trials and temptations. Uh, and so look, he's up to something in trials is what James tells us. And he says, count it all joy. So whatever the outcome of the trial is, is so valuable that you can rejoice even though it is painful. Whatever the outcome of trials is, according to God, is so good that it's worth the pain. And it's not just worth the pain you can rejoice even though it's painful. So what are trials up to in your life? This is one thing. It's not everything. We'll get into that in, in, in future weeks. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces endurance, the ability to wait well and patiently, the ability to not swerve off the, I don't swerve off the purpose of my life when it's hard. I'll find that at the end of that path is this thing called maturity, complete my faith isn't lacking anything at the pro end of the process. And I think how much maturity are we missing as Christians because we quit when it's hard? How much maturity is not in your life today because you walked away instead of staying put? 
How much maturity is not in your life today because you checked out, maybe you didn't leave, but you checked out when you should have pressed in? How much maturity is missing in our church culture because it's hard and I don't like it and the leader made me mad and somebody over there looked at me funny so I left and went to another church? How much maturity is not in our life anymore? Because we don't endure when it's hard. How many people walked out of their marriages when it was too hard? And how much of Jesus' work in our lives got short-circuited when we chose that because it's just too hard? And by the way, it's hard. And it's good. There is a maturity that only comes from staying put. There's a maturity that only comes, comes when you endure when it's hard, when you suffer when it's long. And you do it faithfully, not swerving from the purposes of God because of that pain. And so uh, throughout chapter 1, he kind of unpacks that. If you're going to get into trials, you're going to need a certain kind of wisdom from God. You're going to need to be able to see some things from God's perspective that you aren't seeing from yours right now. Guess what? There's a God who delights to be generous with his wisdom. Ask him. Don't ask him with a a double mind, though. Ask him believing he wants to give it to you. There's particular trials when you're poor. College students, amen? There's some particular challenges that come, particular temptations that come when you're poor. But you know what? There's a subtle set of dangers also when you're rich. And the gospel invites us to take the right posture in both of those. And then there's a certain set of temptations that come out of our trials, right? The temptation to check out, the temptation to self-medicate through sin, the temptation to fear, worry, and anxiety. But don't think that comes from God, right? Because he doesn't tempt people, it says. Instead, my desires latch onto stuff like a fish latches onto a hook, and I get caught. And the problem with getting caught is it comes to sin, and sin grows up. You know what sin grows up into? Death. But it was so fun, death. She was so pretty. Death. He was, what I don't know what the right word is. Death. Oh, but my bank account. Death. Right? The, the full-grown thing produced by sin is death. So it empowers us to faithfully endure trials and temptation. And then the book closes with kind of this same idea. Can we walk out into the lives of people who've been grabbed? grabbed by their temptations who are owned and caught and can we be the kind of people that restore them back out of that because it says a lot of our sins a multitude of our sins get covered up if we love each other enough to pursue each other and pull each other back towards faithfulness to Jesus and so uh, the gospel empowers us in our trials and in our temptations I think one of the great temptations of every trial is this Will I put a question mark on the character of God because life hurts? Will I put a question mark on the character of God because life hurts? Or will I believe he's a father who delights to give good things to me? Will I believe that he's coming again to make things right? Will I believe that he wants to lavish his wisdom, which means lavish his Holy Spirit, which means lavish his presence on me? When I'm trying, do I believe that he wants to accomplish better joy and better satisfaction in me through my trials than, than comfort and ease would have ever given me? Do I believe these things about God when it hurts? Because one of your great temptations and trials is gonna, is gonna be to question the character. The second uh, thing the gospel empowers, the gospel empowers us to reject all forms of partiality. The gospel empowers us to reject all forms of partiality. Out there... They have complete license to play 
or to define us by a set of identities, an ever-increasing number of identities, to divide us from each other, to hate each other because of these competing identities, and the hopes that they can swoop into our lives every four years and say, uh, this set of identities should be connected to me, and, and, and it's important that you hate all those other people not like us, and if I can get enough identities associated with me, I win power, and then I swoop back out to my elite palaces in, in Washington or wherever else where I'm unconcerned with my policies, and I don't give a rip about you until four years later. I want to come and divide you, make you hate each other, so enough of you will vote for me to keep you in power. It's called identity politics, but they play it in the, in the media. They play it in entertainment. They play it in corporations. They play it in politics. But you can't play it in the church because you know what that's called? Partiality. It's called the sin of partiality when I break people into identity groups and then I elevate the status of some and then I dishonor the others and I play games with people based on their race or I play games with people based on their education or I play games with people based on their economic status or I play games with people based on the mask or unmasking that they, they want to do or I play games with people based on their vaccination status all for the sake of me. And that's what the world does but that's not what we do. When you come to the church, there is a God who created you in, your image, in his image, and it doesn't matter what color, what creed, what education, what background you have, made in the image of God, leveled. But there's another leveler of humanity, isn't there? It's not just the creation in the image of God, it's the redemption by the blood of Jesus, and the same blood of Jesus that saves me is the blood of Jesus that saves you. The same blood of Jesus that allows me to sit in here as a worshiper is the blood of Jesus that allows you to sit here as a worshiper. And anytime we want to divide people, and anytime we want to look at people based on some outward characteristic or outward circumstance versus an inward character born by the gospel, it's called partiality. And you notice that, we divide people up, you know, uh, the football coach showed up. Woo! President of the university. Wow! Let's make sure he gets the seat he wants. Now, thankfully, we don't do that, right? And we love having the celebrity show up. But do we love having the guy drug out of the bar last night, sitting here hearing about Jesus this morning? Do we love that? We love the people different than us dragging themselves into this church with a bunch of people that either look different or, or have different economics than them or different backgrounds than them. Do we love those people too? Do we love the people that can help us and we feel like, man, they're going to raise my status? Or do we love people? Show no partiality if you believe in Jesus Christ. Show no partiality if the Lord of glory is your Lord because he levels humanity and no place else on earth like he does in the church does he level us. Does he make us the same? Does he define us by himself and not by the other things that define us? Show no partiality. And he, he concentrates that in, in, in chapter 2 as he, as he walks through that. And it's kind of highly concentrated there, and he, he mainly has the idea of rich and poor in this case, but it's really anything that we use, an outer circumstance versus an inward merit, an inward character that we use to raise and lower the status of people. So some of you guys watch sports, right? I do. And there's somebody up there that, that you want to wear their jersey. And man, you are sings the song that gets you in your feelings. And you love them! They hate Jesus, but you love them, right? There's politicians, some of you, and you're like, man, I, I love that guy. That guy's, he's, he's real. They hate Jesus, or they use Jesus, but you love them. 
and we lift up and we elevate and we exalt celebrities and we exalt politicians and we exalt uh, famous people and we exalt rich people, regardless of how they feel about Jesus. But you know what I have zero problem doing whatsoever? Gossiping about you at lunch. It shouldn't be this way. That I would speak something against a brother and sister in Christ that, that I know while at the same time honoring a Jesus-hating person for their gifts, skills, charisma, money, status, and celebrity. It ought not be so for those who hold to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Show no partiality. Reject partiality. And it's going to force us to ask some hard and honest questions of ourselves. It's not going to force you to ask, is there any partiality here, God? It's going to force you to ask, where is the partiality here, God? Where do I divide people up based on their identities and statuses and their, 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 their uh, something out external? Where do I divide them up and then show more honor to some and less honor to some? What makes me honor people and dishonor people? Is it their walk with Jesus or their job? Their walk with Jesus or their fame? Their walk with Jesus or their money? Their walk with Jesus or their title? What makes me raise the status of people around me? Show no partiality. Third, it empowers us to tame the untamable, destructive force of our tongues. It empowers us to tame the untamable, destructive force. I mean, can everybody raise your hand and say, the vast majority of the problems I have in my life today result from this little thing in my mouth. The idle words, the harsh words, the impatient words, the words I should be speaking that are life-giving, but I hold them back. The times I lose my temper, the times I boast and am arrogant, right back here to this little stupid thing in my mouth. And I have the ability to talk to you about Jesus in front of everybody. And I have the ability to say awful things to people I love with the same mouth. And you know what the gospel does? There's a gospel for that. There's a gospel that can tame what is untamable and give life to what brings so much destruction to the world around me. There's a gospel for the tongue. And so all of life is touched by words or the absence of words, right? And he goes into that, especially in chapter three, but he's also gonna talk about you who boast, right? We're gonna go sell stuff and make a bunch of money. Words. Don't speak evil of people. Words. Go to those who are wandering and bring them back. Words. Blessing God, words. Cursing others, words. But he goes through it mainly in, in chapter three and he's like, he's using natural examples. There's these little bitty things like bits in a horse's mouth and these little bitty things like rudders in a ship and they take these massive things and they put them under control and they, they take them wherever they want. Your tongue is this little bitty thing within your body that controls the whole thing. And he says, you're perfect if you can keep your mouth perfect. And I think the reason that's so is because this is the way Jesus talks about it, right? that there's a deep connection between what's in our heart and what comes out of our mouth. What's in our heart and what comes out in our words. And so he, he says it's this little fire that burns down a big forest and it's set on fire by hell. And isn't that a perfect description? Your words are constantly lighting little fires in the world around you, burning stuff up in the world around you, but they don't have to, right? Because you can be a teacher of the word, it says. You can bring the life-giving word instead of the little fires that you put out, put in your marriage, put with your kids, put with your roommates, put with, uh, with the people you work with, those little fires of gossip, those little fires of slander, those little fires of attack, those little fires of anger, those little fires of selfishness, little fires of impatience, all the little things that come out of it. You can, instead of lighting fires, bring life 
Bring rivers of living water. You can do that instead. You can teach. You can bring back the wanderers. You can bless. You know the Proverbs talks about our words? A fit word is like apples of gold in settings of silver. A fit word brings healing to the bones. The power of your mouth to give life to people around you versus take it is enormous. And the power of your words to take life away from people is enormous. You know one of the biggest lies we've ever let our kids, well, I'm sorry, y'all probably don't do this. Back when I was a kid, one of the biggest lies we used to tell each other, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. Probably such big scars in our life that we would rather somebody have left a physical scar on our skin than to leave those words behind in our lives, wouldn't we? That's the power of words. It's the power of words to destroy, but it's also the power of words to give life to people, to give the gospel to people, to apply the gospel to people who are guilty and in shame and chained. The power to give life, the power to have that right word to heal somebody's bones. Last step. Y'all didn't think I was going to make it. We're going to. We're not done yet, though, but last one. It empowers us to run after God and away from the world. It empowers us to run after God and, and away from the world. You know, the fair's coming back, I hope, in October. Old Corona stole it from us last year. Hopefully it's coming back. So you walk around the fair, and every single aisle is filled, or has down the middle, it's filled with these uh, games that cost extra money, and somebody barking at you from these games, right? And so sometimes they use flattery, like, oh, look how strong you are. Oh, look how pretty your date is. Don't you want to win this, uh, this stuffed animal for them? You know, you could go buy it, but instead, you know, you could just try to win it and waste all your money. But they bark at you, or they tell you, they make fun of you to try to provoke you into anger, so you'll go and beat them and spend your money. As you walk through the world, it's filled with booths. And it's filled with people barking for you, flattery, barking for you, this is satisfaction, barking for you, this is life, barking for you, turn here, you definitely want to play with this one, pleasure's here. Or berating you and, and attacking, you're filled with voices from the world saying, turn in here and sin. Turn in here and attach to the world a little deeper. Turn in here, let the world have your heart. And there's a gospel that empowers us to turn from the barking allure of these, these lights and these games into running after Jesus. And that's really the central point, I think, of James. Be a doer of the word. It's the central point of James saying, don't be double-minded. Don't be caught between the world and God anymore. Run after him. Draw near to him. And an amazing thing will happen. He'll draw near to you back. Like the prodigal son, the son wanders off, squanders everything, basically says, I wish you were dead, Dad. But as soon as he comes back over into the eyesight of the father, the father runs after him to restore him and welcome him back. And that's such a great picture of what happens throughout James. The world has grabbed us, and as soon as we draw near to him, as soon as he sees us on the horizon of return and repentance, he runs and restores. He draws near. And so especially in chapter uh, 4, he attacks this, this worldliness that's with us, and he gets very pointed, and he meddles a little bit. Why are you fighting so much? Because you want your own stinking way, and you don't care what it takes to get it. 
Why are you fighting so much in your marriage? Because you want what you want, and you don't care if you have to run over your wife or your husband to get it. Why do you, why do you fight so much in, in your groups or fight so much with your roommates? Because you want what you want. You don't care what it takes to get it. That's what he says. And instead of asking God, right? You have not because you have not. Instead of asking God, you fight for yourself. And then if you do ask God for something, you're so selfish, you ask to spend it on your own lusts and desires. And one of the most pointed, powerful verses in the text, you adulterers, do you not know? If you want to be a friend of the world, that's fine, but don't dare think you're a friend of God. You're an enemy of God if you decide to become a friend of the world. That's the language when we choose sin and what's worth in the context. I ask God to give me things to spend on my own lusts, meaning I ask God for the money to hire, there's little ears here, a woman of the night. I ask God for the resources to embrace the world. Don't do that. Draw near to him, he's life. Draw near to him, his presence is the fullness of joy. Draw near to him. And the most amazing thing on earth is that God would ever draw near to us and the presence that is the fullness of joy wrap us in that. Wrap us in that. And since we can't do it alone, again, the end of chapter five, if you find somebody wandering, go get them. If you find the world's tentacles have grabbed hold of your friend's heart, love them enough to go tear them back out of it. If there's people in your discipleship group, people in your ministry where the tentacles of the world have, have grabbed hold of them, they've pulled them away, go get them. If there's people in your Sunday school class that the tentacles of the world have grabbed hold of them, go get them. And God says, I'll cover a lot of your sins if you give, a, if you give your life to helping other people back. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. Worldliness is such a natural drift that we hardly notice it's there. Right? It looks like everybody else. I go to church. I go to Fletcher. And yet the world has my heart. But it looks like everybody else, so I'm okay. I really am not bad like those people, so it's okay. Don't you know that to be a friend of the world, to let the world have your heart versus God, is to make yourself an enemy of God. Don't let God, don't let, don't let God be your enemy. A few practical things as we wrap up. First, have you embraced the gospel? That Jesus lived, died, and rose again to offer you life. Have you turned from your sin and believed that? Has the word implanted in you? If not, don't leave here without talking to someone. Don't leave here without it's filling out one of those white sheets and asking somebody to talk to you more about that. Don't, don't trust your religion. Don't trust your goodness. Don't trust your born and raised in middle-class Americanness. Jesus, right? Second, how well are you doing at doing? How well are you doing at doing? The perennial danger is we sit in church and we hear and we sit in campus ministries and we hear and we sit in Sunday schools and we hear and we open our Bibles, which you should, most days of the week and we hear and it stops. And we're not gonna go do anything about partiality after we leave this sermon. I'm gonna get the lunch. Those stinking Methodists better not get there before us either. Sorry, that's partiality, right? Or... I heard, man, 
man, he's meddling with me about my tongue. I got to watch my tongue. And then I just go leave here. And I don't care about being careful with my tongue, right? How are you doing at actually doing the word? Not just hearing and storing and hearing and storing. That's going to be the perennial, that's going to be the challenge throughout this series. And then third, where can you see the world's grip in your heart and in your life? Where does the world's views, where does the world's values, where does the world's pleasures have a, have a controlling part of your heart? Is it an area of greed? Neighbors have a bigger house. People in the church have a bigger house. No, it's not greed. I just want a brand new car. I, yeah, you know, I, I can afford a brand new car. The other guy in the church parking lot has a brand new car. Is it greed? Is it, is it lust? Is it believing that something out there will give you the pleasure God alone is designed to give you. Where does the world have a controlling part of your heart? May we be a people who leave behind knowing and hearing and knowing and hearing and imperfectly by the grace of God run after doing. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we bow. We bow as those who have been saved and purified and washed. We bow as those who are righteous because you say we're righteous because your son died and rose again. We bow as those who love you, but our love is so weak. We bow as those who believe, help our unbelief. And so, Father, I pray throughout this room that your spirit would be doing what he needs to do in our lives. For some, calling us from death to life, would you make the dead live? For some, Father, it's it's pressing on them um, these areas of mouth or or thought or or worldliness or, or... Partiality, it's it's pressing on them, God, to turn to you instead. For some, it's caught in trials, and God, we can't count it joy, it hurts too much. Would Would you give us the perspective of joy? Let your word do what it needs to do in us. We pray that, Father. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, save you. If not, you can come. We can pray together. There's a white sheet in your bulletin. We'd love for you to fill it out and give it to somebody, and we'll do our best to walk you through the questions and walk you through the the challenges you're facing to come to faith in Jesus. But maybe for you, you see the words that are idle, and you know how they've hurt. You see those things in your heart where you divide people up or where you think poorly of people or where you think great of people you shouldn't. You see that stuff in there. Maybe for you, it's, I'm, I'm facing all kinds of trials, and I just don't even know how to get to what you're talking about, this thing called joy. There's a father that delights to hear you. Talk to him about it. Talk to him about it. Or maybe for you, I, God, I just want to make a fresh commitment to being a doer. I've lived my life as a hearer. Now I want to be one who does. Let's stand together and sing. You can respond here. You can respond right where you are. Let's sing together as we stand.
Father, you are holy. You are so other than us, and yet you would come to us. You are so much more perfect than us with blazing purity and light and accessible, filled with glory, and yet you would come to us. Oh, Father, that we might purify ourselves because you've made us pure. That we might be holy because you've made us holy. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.